Welcome into the Archive Sports Business Podcast. This is episode four. In this episode, we're going to be talking about roster depreciation allowance. In 2013, Forbes writer Dan Alexander noted a simple fact about the Houston Astros. The fact was that they seemed to be an extremely profitable franchise, perhaps the most in the history of any MLB franchise. This was met with a scathing response from the Astros organization. Their communications staff retorted, quote, We are going to have expenses higher than revenues, so that does not make us profitable. During the lockout that occurred during the 2010 NFL season, the owner of the Carolina Panthers claimed that the owners were losing $200 million per year and needed to, quote, take back their league. Eight years later, that team sold for a record $2.2 billion. That's a heck of a lot of money to pay for a mature business that can't turn a profit. Maybe it was a little more profitable in reality than on paper. Here, we'll dive into one of the contributing factors to this seeming discrepancy, a lesser-known tax treatment for professional sports franchises known as Roster Depreciation Allowance, or RDA. Here, we'll dive into its origins, its follies, and its updates, and its current applications. Generally, in accounting, intangible assets are depreciated. Like tangible assets, they have a useful life, and the IRS allows for the depreciation to take place in a gradual, set schedule so that when the assets are sold, transaction costs are made a bit more smooth. I'm not an accounting expert, but the basics are as follows. There's a basis. That's what's paid for the asset. Then, from that basis, the set depreciation schedule is subtracted each year until the asset is sold. At the time the asset is sold, the price received minus the new depreciated basis amount is what you're taxed on. Let's say, for instance, you buy a truck for $1,000. Depreci- that's your basis. That's what you paid for it. And the depreciation allowance, let's say, is $100 a year. And then you sell it after five years. Your new depreciated basis is $500. And if you sell the truck for $700, you originally paid $1,000, it depreciated down to $500, you sell it for $700, now you've got a $200 profit that you would pay tax on. Again, the idea is that that truck will have uses, it'll be used, it'll wear down. And so again, to try to smooth that transaction at the end and try to account for some of that loss in value, a depreciation allowance is given for certain assets by the IRS. So how does this relate to sports teams and the roster? Why is the roster depreciated here? So let's dig in. In sports franchises, the labor or the players are paid via contracts. These contracts have varying lengths of time, various optionality at the end, and generally the caliber and specific construction of the roster is a competitive advantage or disadvantage in winning games and consequently to the earnings potential of the team and then therefore the value of the team over time. So the question became, how do you account for that? How do you deal with team options on the end of contracts when you purchase a team? And what percent of the money going towards purchasing the team is going towards purchasing the team or the brand itself? And what percentage is going towards purchasing these players' contracts and these options themselves? 
Well, this question shaped itself throughout the decades in the U.S. court system. It took many years and many cases to get to this current incarnation of roster depreciation allowance. Starting in 1927 and 1928 with the Chicago and Pittsburgh MLB clubs going to court, the teams had previously been taking a tax deduction on the difference between players' contracts they bought in a given year versus those they sold in a given year. Then in 1928, they both began taking the entire amount of money paid to players in a given year as a tax deduction. At that time, the players' contracts were all just one year, so they figured they could take the depreciation all over one year, regardless of any optionality at the end, which at this time, these contracts were one year and then they had a team option at the end. So they went to court to protect this depreciation. Again, they viewed that their contracts were all one year, so regardless of the optionality at the end, they viewed that they should be able to depreciate those contracts all over one year. They won that battle. The next big cog in this, in this roster depreciation allowance battles within the court was with the big Bill Veach, the aggressive sports entrepreneur who was a chain-smoking, wooden-legged World War II veteran and a heck of a baseball promoter. After selling the Milwaukee Brewers, a team he purchased with former Cubs star Charlie Grimm, Veach ended up buying the Cleveland Indians in 1946. He argued that the amount of the purchase price allocated towards the purchase of, quote, the rights of the contracts, not necessarily directly associated with the wage expense in the contracts themselves, should itself be a depreciable, intangible asset. He won that battle. Then... In 1965, the new expansion franchise in the NFL of the Atlanta Falcons challenged the mass asset rule as it related to sports franchises. The mass asset rule prevents depreciation of intangible assets with undetermined life if they are inseparable from intangible assets of a determinable life. The court ruled that this rule didn't apply here because players' contracts could indeed be separated from the franchise rights. So the battle raged on, or the challenges raised, raged on throughout the courts. Anyway, they raged on. In 1970, former MLB commissioner Bud Selig purchased the Seattle Pilots for $10.8 million. In this purchase, he, in an effort to maximize the depreciation benefits, allocated 94% of the purchase price, or $10.2 million, to the players' contracts, and the rest to other components, plant and equipment, and the franchise itself. The court upheld this 94% allocation. So you can see here that throughout the courts, Bill Veach got the optionality and some of these other components of the contracts to be depreciated. The mass asset rule was challenged with the Atlanta Falcons, and now Bud Selig, so you had that protected. Now Bud Selig was assigning a large portion of the purchase price to those contracts. Again, this allocation was upheld, but in response to this allocation being upheld, Congress and the IRS jumped into gear. They moved to adjust the maximum amounts that could be allocated to players' contracts to 50% of the purchase price of the team, and they said that that could be depreciated over five years. So that ruling stood for a while. Then in 1993, when Congress passed the Section 197 of the tax law, this section of the tax law gave all businesses the ability to depreciate 100% of the purchase price of goodwill, going concern value, and other intangible assets generally over 15 years. But in this section, 
It specifically excluded sports franchises. So sports franchises stayed marked at this 50 over 5 rule. That was until 2004 when Congress repealed Section 1056 of the tax code. And repealing this allowed sports franchises with their, quote, workforce in place, etc., to be included in the 100% depreciation over 15 years allowance that these other assets and, and entities were included in. With players being paid via contracts, and with these new rulings, the owners were now allowed to expense the players' salaries in a given year, as well as layer on the roster depreciation allowance against income. So the roster depreciation allowance um, amount shows up as an operating expense, and then that is combined with the player's salary for that given year's total expense um, as far as it relates to the players. So here's a couple of anecdotal notes on how these effects have shown up throughout the years. One large effect is in the valuations of these franchises that can take advantage of this tax treatment. Although the most potent form of protecting and growing franchise value is the limited or capped number of franchises available in a given sports league, as well as the kind of generalized regional exclusivity, rights to shares of TV revenue, and other league licensing revenues. And additionally, the set number of franchises in the sports or the league is generally financially protected from dilution of these TV numbers and these other valuable rights. It's protected from the dilution that would occur with the addition of franchises by the payment of an expansion fee by a new team to the current teams. That fee would generally be large and proportional to the valuation of those rights and paid to the other franchises as well as a portion to league operations potentially to fund some of those costs associated with that new team joining the league. But an additional effect on the value of these franchises is the tax benefits. Roster depreciation allowance being one of those tax benefits that come along with purchasing one of these franchises. In May of 2018, hedge fund manager David Tepper, famous for his 2011 call of, quote, either the economy will improve, so buy stocks, or the Fed will do QE, so buy stocks. Either way, buy stocks, end quote. And he did, changing Tepper from a minor single-figure billionaire, $1 to $2 billion estimated, who was a distressed debt buyer, into an 11-figure net worth stock picker and now an NFL team owner. He purchased the Panthers for $2.2 billion, with the vast majority of that being assigned to intangible assets. His yearly roster depreciation allowance will likely be north of $100 million per year. The Houston Astros have used their nearly $700 million purchase price to be able to depreciate almost $40 million per year in roster depreciation allowance, while simultaneously slashing their payroll from $77 million a year to $13 million a year putting that annual reduction of taxable income related to RDA combined with the player's contract expenses to almost $55 million while they've taken their costs down to roughly 20% of what it was before. So if the Astros normally would run a healthy 20 to $30 million per year profit with this RDA situation, that would turn that into a loss and a, and a solid one at that. And of course, with all these big numbers being thrown around and these billions of dollars, these franchises selling for more and more year after year after year, it does seem crazy that this big roster depreciation allowance exists and it would actually make the final transaction way less smooth than, than if it didn't, it, if it didn't occur. But again, 
although right now these sports teams are not kind of quote playing out their profitable lives and they they don't have significant wear and tear and in reality these sale prices over these recent times have shown that the the franchises are producing more and more and more money each year and are appreciating well beyond the rate of inflation i i would be remiss if i didn't throw in here that although it does seem crazy now as in as with any business, there's certainly no guarantee that these intangible assets do appreciate to the heavens forever. Uh, we can see it in these massive goodwill and brand value write downs that are that have recently been occurring in companies like Kraft Heinz and these other legacy manufacturers where they're writing off tens of billions of dollars and you can find it in their their filings and in many cases rightfully so. And in, in large sports leagues case, there could be, you know, rival leagues or rival sports, uh, public relations problems, TV contract problems, mismanaged expansions of these franchises. All of these things could drive those intangible assets basically down to the ground. And then there would need to be a fire sale of the, all the football helmets and ice machines to really try to recoup any value at all. So. That could happen, and I'll just throw that out there. Anyway, now back to the show. So another note, these roster depreciation allowance tax deductions can easily exceed income or the the profits of the sports team in a given year, as, as shown above. So that tax benefit received from the roster depreciation allowance and other benefits can be passed on to the owner or the ownership group's personal tax returns. This means that not only... Can it be used for additional tax sheltering within the operations of the sports franchise, but it can be used across other streams of income that the owner or ownership group might have, making that break especially valuable to an owner with the net worth of David Tepper, who may want to venture out of the generally low-tax world of hedge fund general partner and into other areas of business. Additionally, since this roster depreciation allowance tax deduction is based on purchase price, it can be leveraged. This is not unique to the roster depreciation allowance deduction, but given its size, it's worth noting. So I'll discuss here a little bit. Generally, and more so in recent years, leverage has increased in purchasing these sports teams. For instance, the NFL, whose teams actually have some of the lowest leverage ratios among the big four American sports leagues, but anyway, uses its own league office borrowing program to help finance these team purchases. The league office, through its ability to work with banks as a single borrower, allowing them to the, the banks to work more easily through syndication and, and offer lower rates through, to the NFL office as a single borrower. And the NFL is increasingly providing this financing through this program for portions of teams' team purchase price. The NFL's debt usually starts beyond the 30% level needed to function as a controlling interest, uh, and then the team equity beyond that amount would serve as collateral to the NFL's loans. Uh, reportedly, the borrower can borrow up to $150 million from the NFL, although that number might, might well uh, you know, be growing larger. So that, combined with other debt you know, potentially used to purchase uh, the team, could provide a large leverage tax benefit to the owners who, depending on the number and style of the ownership partnership, could put up as little in capital as just a few years of this RDA tax break. 
The Houston Astros purchase, for instance, according to Forbes, was made with over $300 million in debt. Additionally, and probably not for the best, although that's a whole nother topic, this depreciation can be used in stadium slash practice facility negotiations with public entities. The sports teams may be looking to get tax breaks or help finance in some way these capital expenditures with public money. The public entities or the officials may rightfully be wanting this investment in their respective areas, and the roster depreciation allowance can provide cover slash reasoning and helps, quote, sell it to the constituents. Big sports teams barely making a profit, and hey, we want this investment made in our jurisdiction, so we're giving this or we're giving that. It can help sell that. For instance, in 2014, in a stadium negotiation with public entities in Charlotte, the ownership of the Carolina Panthers claimed that they would have to move to another city if Charlotte couldn't finance an additional $87 million needed for stadium res- uh, renovations. The team would put up $37.5 million, but it had no place to turn but for public help in, in the rest of the funding. Four years later, the team sold for $2.2 billion in total. Again, that's a heck of a lot of money for a company that couldn't even come up with $87 million in debt financing on their own. But it probably won't compare to the sale price when it changes hands next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Uh, again, it's, it's much appreciated. We've been getting a lot of positive feedback, and we hope that you'll continue to listen. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe. Rate five stars. That helps a lot early on. And uh, tell your friends about it. And again, thank you and stay well.